Hello everyone, it's August 17th, 2021. This week we're opening the case on the mysterious Soyuz drill hole. Spoiler alert, no new leads. Then it's a quick chat about CST Starliner. As you may have heard, it's being destacked and put back in for repairs. One day she'll fly. Until then, we'll keep hope alive and lift off. Tower. Welcome to episode 321 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. All right. So did you guys hear that Tethers Unlimited uh, had like a big success this week? They announced that um, their drag, the the demo mission they were on, Drag Racer, uh, successfully deorbited. Yep. It deorbited within eight months, right? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So, and if not, the satellite that it orbited would have been up there for like what a decade. It, or more, okay, it's actually better. Okay, so, okay. Um, oh, maybe it's not better. Let's see. So they launched in November 2020 um, as part of the Drag Racer mission. They were installed on two different satellites, Prox One and NPSAT One. No, oh, Alchemy and Augury, and then there are two more in orbit, Prox One and NPSAT One. Um, that are still in orbit. Prox One has already deployed the Terminator tape, but the other one hasn't. So yeah, it's really cool. Like it works. <laughs> yep. Um, not, not that that's too, too much of a shock, but like such a cheap component, you can just slap on your CubeSat and deorbit in eight months with no active control or anything. Yep. And, uh, just to remind people, this is a 70 meter tail that essentially is you know wound out or spooled out from yeah. the satellite i don't remember we've talked about it it's i mean they say terminator tape so i imagine I, like like i always think of like tape like you know kind of like scotch tape i don't know how thick it is but think is it measuring around tape. there well it's about the same right yeah so about that same width yeah yeah but you know more rigid and and thicker oh well yeah but i was just thinking of like you know the width of it because i wasn't quite sure but um but yeah. 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 So the the other thing to keep in mind is that it's called an electrodynamic tether. So it actually is um, using, I believe, uh, inducted currents from the Earth's magnetic field to. So it's it's not just that it's like increasing atmospheric drag. It's actually like using the the um, the magnetosphere to to slow a satellite down which is actually really cool because that probably means that you have different deorbit times based on the inclination of your orbit and i would expect a polar orbit to be faster because the orientation of the field changes faster because you not only mm-hmm. have it rotating in you know the the north south direction every orbit but you also have it rotating in the normal direction towards space and towards the earth. So I don't know, maybe, maybe that makes it a little worse, but I I would expect it makes it better, but yeah, pretty darn cool. We are going to go back to the 2018 leak aboard that Soyuz, and apparently this is turning into a whodunit. But I thought that that was always kind of the question, or yeah, at least one of, of the questions, because yeah. we never knew. Yeah, so like the we never got a hard answer as to what happened, but like now it's like it, it's gone all film noir. Like fingers are being pointed, mm-hmm. um, which I mean shouldn't be the case, right? Like the, nobody should be blamed. Like you find the problem and you fix it. You don't blame somebody for it and i mean it's a subtle Mm -hmm. distinction but like just be nice to people figure out the problem and fix it well so 
Right. We, we first suspected that it was a micrometeoroid strike and then they took really good photos of it. And like, clearly it's a drill. Like you can see skips across the, across the plastic cover. And then they went and did some exterior inspections. And I don't believe that photos were ever released of that. And like, from my perspective, that's kind of critical, right? Like we kind of need to release those photos because either this is an assembly mistake, which I thoroughly believe it is like my, my, you know, armchair guess is that there was something covering up this surface. And during assembly, somebody was drilling into something else and their drill, you know, probably took longer to drill through whatever they're drilling through. And it suddenly pops and like, oh, crap, I just drilled through the freaking hull. And, you know, like, yeah, you change your procedures. You know, maybe that person uh, was overly neglectful and needs to have a position change. But like, wh- whatever. The the null hypothesis, I suppose, is that somebody did it on orbit. A- and from my perspective, like this should be discoverable from photos of the exterior, right? On the inside, we can see uh, drill marks. So we know it was a drill. The question is, was it done on the ground or in space? If it was done on the ground, then on the outside, you should either see signs of the hull not being drilled through all the way, um, but being weakened enough that it was able to, you know, burst after, you know, X amount of hours in space. Or, uh, probably more likely, the evidence of a glue patch being applied, right? Somebody drills all the way through the hull on Earth, goes, oh crap, grabs the hot glue gun or, you know, whatever they have sitting around, uh, in a, in a spacecraft assembly room, uh, grab, grabs the metaphorical glue gun and, you know, sprays down some adhesive to close the gap. It passes, uh, vacuum tests on Earth. It is just fine in orbit. And then the you know, uh, improvised patch fails on orbit. I would think that the two, you know, between those two there, you're going to see a very big difference on the outside of the vehicle. You know, if it's a glue patch, you basically see a normal drill hole and no explosive, uh, sort of decompression. Like, I feel like these two options have to look very different, even if it, you know, we know it's a drill, but if it's a drill on the ground, it shouldn't look like a drill on orbit. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong about how distinctive this, uh, how, how distinctive I'm expecting it to be, but you can tell I'm a little worked up. So at, at the time, back in 2018, the Russian government had suggested that it might have been um, a NASA astronaut drilling through the side of the vehicle, which is insane. Um, but they, they suggested, you know, maybe this was a person doing this. Um, and it got shut down pretty quickly. Like I was like, no, don't be silly. But now apparently they're doubling down on that hypothesis. Um, Mikhail Kotov from TASS, which is like, it's the news, uh, outlet that like has its, has its finger to the pulse of Russian space. Like a lot of really good information comes out of TASS. Um, but, um, one of their journalists uh, interviewed an anonymous source who Ars Technica suggests is Dmitry Rogozin, uh, which, yeah, probably probably makes a lot of sense. But uh, they did this interview, and in the interview, this anonymous source, first off, released information that in the U.S. would have been protected by HIPAA, um, which is just, it's bad form, even if it's not, you know, internationally illegal like it's it's bad form but so basically uh this anonymous source put 
put the blame solidly on a NASA astronaut. It turns out one of the astronauts on board, I don't want to say anything more detailed. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like we, we, oh, actually, uh, no, NASA actually, uh, said her name. So, uh, it was Serena, uh, Serena Alanon Chancellor. Um, and a- apparently she had a medical condition that was not previously disclosed. And this anonymous source um, says that this condition caused her to have a mental breakdown. I mean, like, I don't remember the the exact words. I mean, it's being translated anyway, but like, you know, this, this mental distress um, and that the astronaut attempt made attempts by various means to get sent home early, like in quotes, attempts by various means to end the mission early, uh, which is an insinuation that other things were tried. And this, you know, this astronaut who has gone through so many rigors, uh, had to resort to taking a drill to a vehicle. It's, it's insane. Sorry. Um, and so, um, uh, the source insinuated that one of the things they did before sabotaging a, a Soyuz was that they shut down, uh, one of the cameras that covers the entrance of PMA one. So like the, the gateway between the Russian and international segments, uh, shut down a camera and then went and drilled into a thing. And then, um, this source also kind of protested the fact that Russia was not allowed to inspect the toolkits on the U S side looking, you know, for like evidence, like metal shavings. Um, and then also, um, they were salty about NASA denying the use of polygraph testing, which by the way, polygraphs are not reliable. They've been shown over and over and over to be unreliable. Um, and just the fact that that was the test that they wanted to use is ridiculous. Um, but then on top of it, like actually, even if polygraph testing was reliable, like asking NASA astronauts to take a lie detector test is bizarre and out of order. Oh, so NASA initially stayed quiet and Ars Technica interpreted this, I think correctly, um, as NASA refusing to give these accusations, the dignity of a response. And, and I, I mm-hmm. think that's pretty good. Other people have interpreted it a little, uh, less benevolently saying, you know, it was, um, it was more like, uh, uh, NASA not backing up their own folks, but I, I, I don't think that's true. Um, but 24 hours later, um, Kathy Leaders tweeted um, and said, uh, NASA astronauts, including Serena and on Chancellor, are extremely well respected, serve their country, and make invaluable contributions to the agency. We stand behind Serena and her professional conduct. We do not believe there is any credibility to these accusations. Great. Like, I couldn't have written a better tweet. So that's kind of the the light at the end of the tunnel there is NASA's like, uh, no. <laughs> But what, I mean, what do you guys think? Like, is this as infuriating to you as it is to me or, or am I kind of blowing this out of perspective um, a little? Well, I think it's bizarre more than anything. Um, that's <laughs> okay, my I'll, first thought. I'll agree with that. I mean, it's, I believe you said it's poor form. It's just, it's, it's just, uh, oh. I mean, it says something like more about Ross Cosmos than anything, obviously. Yeah. Um, and exactly. I don't know what's going on there, but this is, this is just weird. So that's kind of all I got. It's embarrassing, really. Yeah. <laughs> excuses like this um delta v in the chat actually um had posted something earlier and just uh just added a comment so thank you delta v i'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and read this 
So yeah, so the the quote here is uh, unnamed sources from Ars Technica, and the Ars Technica article will be linked, obviously. The quote says, NASA officials knew that rebutting these new claims would inflame an already difficult relationship with the political leaders of Roscosmos, including with the agency's head, Dmitry Rogozin. However, two sources told Ars that the leadership of NASA's astronaut office was extremely frustrated by NASA's lack of support for Anna Chancellor. This prompted the stronger statements that NASA released Friday. Uh, and then uh, Delta V sums up by saying, whatever the reason, the astronaut office reportedly wasn't happy about the silence. Yeah, great. That makes me feel good. Okay, well, like, just be aware, there's drama on the ISS. Like, this is not an easy thing to do technically or geopolitically. <laughs> kind of just wish uh, it goes and we just shut up. <laughs> I mean, assuming that, the, I mean, this sounds entirely consistent with him. And he's just, you know, I mean, I, I, I like the Russian space you know what i mean i i, I like their yep. cosmonauts i like they're part of the station i like you know what they're doing and uh, it's just really annoying to have to be like that they're associated with this this knucklehead is the face of them in a lot of ways and so yeah the cold war's been over for decades yeah he's the trampoline like any stupid comment <laughs> it's mm -hmm. gonna be where it goes and that's why that's why we're assuming he's the anonymous source yeah, he's the one with the trampoline comment. From that drama, then let's move on to some other drama. Not quite, not nearly as dramatic. Um, but Starliner has to be destacked, or it has been, um, or is in the process of being destacked. Um, mm. So it was, yeah. So last week it was all set to go, and then they encountered some problems with some valves, and I believe that these are some RCS valves or the internal workings of you know the RCS thrusters, uh, the oxidizer and uh, the hydrazine specifically. And it was the oxidizer, which is nitrogen tetroxide, um, which had presented a problem, um, which was that these valves inside had become stuck because the nitrogen tetroxide, it had apparently permeated some Teflon seals on these valves. And then from there, those, I guess, tetroxide-soaked seals on uh, the dry side of the valve they had interacted with oxygen, or I'm sorry, with moisture, which is kind of the mystery here. Like no one knows where or how exactly this moisture had like gotten into the system. But that interaction created nitric acid, which had then corroded the valve, which had basically jammed it shut. So that's kind of what I understand happened. Um, and this is all something that, you know, they had figured out, I think, while it was still on the pad or shortly after they had moved it to the vehicle integration facility. And they did manage to get like nine of these valves unstuck, but there was like a total of 14, I think. Oof. So there were still some that they couldn't fix. And so, yeah, from there, uh, they had to roll it back. And, you know, we're, we are now back to waiting another couple months. And we had talked about this last episode, I think, Dennis, that they're not going to have a slot like waiting for them on station right, right. because of the crew three launch. So they don't have anywhere to dock. So they're just going to have to wait until that's all done with. So now, you know, mm -hmm. things have been pushed back uh, at least a couple more months. What is mm -hmm. it? July, August, September. Yeah. So like two or three more months. Yeah. Disappointing. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I try to, I'm trying to put in perspective. My, my, my thoughts on this are, you know, as it's happening and just excruciatingly, you know, uh, Delay after delay after delays, uh, you know, being announced. <laughs> In the long term, though, you know, if they're, you know, both flying to the station for the next 10 years, I don't think it's really going to matter that, you know, uh, Starliner was delayed another two years longer than it should have been or something like that. You know what I mean? That's, while it's happening, it's, it's miserable, but like, I think if we're looking back 10, 20 years from now, it's going to be a drop in the, 
in the bucket. But we'll see, though. I mean, <laughs> who the heck knows whenever they're going to get to... That's assuming that they could fix this and finally get to uh, get crew uh, launching uh, by 2022. But I wonder what caused this issue, like, really, like, or, mm. or rather, I'm wondering how the moisture got into those valves. Because this is a problem that they didn't have before on the first launch, um, and then they had their pad abort test, and they didn't have any problems then. So what's, like, I just don't understand what's different here, because, I mean, I don't know if this is, like, a big design flaw, or if it's just a... Processing. Yeah. Uh... And I didn't know that, you know, Teflon valves could soak up nitrogen tetroxide <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> then corrode. I had no idea about any of that. Yeah. I wonder if it's actually the valve, if the valve is made of Teflon. Well, the valve seal. So it's not the valve, but there's like a little Teflon seal. It's metal, okay. It's a metal valve. Yeah. 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 So the, so the seal is Teflon and apparently let some, uh, nitrogen tetroxide come through and then the corrosion happened. Not in the seal, but in the in the metal valve. That makes right. That yeah, makes, it, that that is pretty unexpected. I'll agree. And I'm guessing that you know this is pretty deep up in you know the works there, so that's why they usually don't have to worry about the moisture because, well, actually, I don't know, but yeah, there's like you know all kinds of valves you know that lead out to the actual hypergolic thruster at the end of you know this whole big whole chain of valves and so forth. So, I'm I mean, how did it get that far into the system? Um, you know, kind of reminds me of the weird problem that uh, the Crew Dragon had, but that was something completely different, but it did involve a valve and it involved a hypergolic. Um, only that time it was what, um, it was just a rapid pressurization, which caused a little slug of um, the monopropellant to slam into, mm -hmm. what was it, a titanium valve, which then ignited. Yep. So, right. yeah. It could, it could have been that. It could have been that. Yeah. <laughs> At least this didn't result in the whole thing blowing up on the pad. That would have been bad. So much more benign problem. One of the things, though, that I've seen on Twitter is people going like, just cancel it already. Like, just and it's like, no, 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 no. We we need diversity. Like, we, we need as many different vehicles as we can, because trust me, Crew Dragon is going to have an issue one day, mm -hmm. um, not because it's SpaceX. But because it's a space vehicle, yeah, <laughs> like, that's, what yeah. <laughs> that's what happens. And on that day, we really don't want to have to ship people to a different country. Like if we have another commercial crew partner that is, you know, just in the, the launch pad down the street, that's so much better. So... And weren't there people also talking about, I, I think there are people talking about Dream Chaser a lot too, right? Because there's a little bit of talk about whether or not that might be crewed yeah. again. Yeah, I would love to see uh, people flying Dream Chaser, but um, right now they're they're really focusing on on cargo, which, you know, is is a nice stopover, not a bad thing. I mean, it sucks to, to compete for a contract and lose it, especially having put so much work into it, but it's not a bad thing to start with cargo and then move on to crew. I mean, for the, the SpaceX people, uh, like the SpaceX can do no wrong people like, Hey, guess what? That's what SpaceX did. So it's a good idea. You know, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Cause dream chaser did get like, uh, the, the cargo contract, right? Yep. Yeah. And, and they're actually, they're, they're cranking away. They actually posted photos of their uh, their CBM common birthing. Yeah, CBM uh, adapter today. Let me see if mm. I can find it. Now, wasn't one of the issues with Dream Chaser, like even though it's just there to deliver cargo, is that you still have to have the astronauts pass by exactly. some... Mm -hmm. They got to get too close to like fuel and like yeah. dangerous systems <laughs> uh, in order to... yeah. Disembark. Mike in the chat says, uh, one crew dragon already exploded. Starliner hasn't done that yet. Yep. 
That's right. yeah. P- pick your measures because if you don't if you don't match your measures of success to your preconceptions or, or your you know your favorites, you can you know you can wind up having your favorite not be the best. Yeah, that's always the thing about SpaceX that kind of worries me is that you know because. Uh you know, they iterate so fast that it's like they don't always like, you know, if something does go wrong, it might be very bad, which, you know, like, because I mean, how many, I don't think that's ever happened before, right? Has there ever been any kind of a, I mean, well, in fact, they've had rockets blow up on the pad. Well, I mean, they've had this happen a couple of times. So, I well, mean, actually well, start on the, or uh, Apollo one though, like it has yeah, happened okay, there was and, that, it, and yeah. it does happen. And, uh, you know, SpaceX didn't kill anybody. That doesn't yeah. mean that they won't in the future, but I mean, point, point taken that yeah like i mean it's it's different approaches different organizational and different engineering approaches it's i i think it's only a good thing to have different ways of doing things all happening at once yeah it's a little inefficient but you know it's an inefficiency that that will keep you from being kneecapped down the line Mm -hmm. absolutely cough hls cough (laughs) (laughs) something something was in my throat (laughs) Hey, we, we have some HLS drama coming up in the shorts and sweets too, so. Well, moving on to three short and sweets as usual. Dennis, you got the first one. Yeah, first up, shuttle payload readied for restoration. Three decades after launching on STS-35 and 67, the hardware comprising the Astro-1 and Astro-2 payloads are in the process of being recovered and restored for museum display. The payloads, a collection of telescopes mounted on space lab pallets in Shovel's cargo bay, are being refurbished by the volunteer-led Astro Restoration Project. While flight hardware is typically refit or stripped and cannibalized by NASA for other uses, this equipment, like other unique pieces, was auctioned off. Scott Vangen, the Restoration Project's lead, was an alternate payload specialist for the Astro 2 mission. All right, next, uh, AXEVA falls behind schedule. An OIG report, the Office of Inspector General, uh, an OIG report released on August 10th found a 20-month delay in the delivery timeline of the XEVA moon suit. This would preclude a 2024 Artemis landing. Technical challenges include reworking PLIS PCBs to ensure non-critical failures don't spill over to affect the communication system, displaying control uh, prototyping issues, incorrect specs used to design a complicated PLIS interface, and difficulties designing HLS integrations without vehicle maturity. NASA announced earlier this year that it will be contracting out moon suit work to contractors who will be encouraged to use technologies developed for XEVA. It's not yet clear if XEVA and XEMU will be the next generation of NASA suits, or if privately developed alternatives will be employed first. And then next up, GSLV fails to reach orbit. On August 11th, ISRO's GSLV suffered an upper stage issue, and after separation from its first stage, the second stage began to roll. Telemetry indicated a loss of altitude and velocity moments later. This Mark II version of GSLV, which has a domestically developed Hydrolox engine, had failed previously on its first launch in 2010, but had performed on subsequent launches. This launch was delayed nearly a year and a half due to unspecified technical issues as well as COVID-19. Two more launches are slated for later this year, but may now be delayed. So that was the GSLV launch that we were talking about last week, and it did not do well. And I actually didn't know about this until this morning, so uh, sorry to hear about it. We're 
have questions, comments, and correction burns, and we do have some good old-fashioned corrections, or at least one. Yeah, so this is about last week when uh, we had talked about SpaceX, and we well, we had talked about that Tim Dodd video where we had learned all kinds of cool stuff, or at least I did, because I think I'd watched it. I don't know if you had, Dennis. Not at that point. Of, yeah. <laughs> not when we were recording the episode, so <laughs> hence the problem with <laughs> what I was saying, yeah. So we were talking about the grid fins and how they had, you know, changed the placement of those fins mm-hmm. and more like an X shape now mm-hmm. and not so much of a cross shape. And I think you had mentioned that that would make them easier to catch exactly. um, because because obviously that's what they're going to be doing since it's not going to be landing on any kind of legs. Um, and that's where the confusion came in. And we got an email from Andrew Z, as we always do. So, <laughs> Yeah, sure. And, and he, you know, just helpfully uh, pointing out to us that uh, uh, Tim Dodd in the uh, during that interview basically asks, you know, Elon if uh, they were going to catch the uh, super heavy first stage with uh, the grid fins. And uh, he uh, said no. And uh, if you look at, uh, you know, the super heavy, you can see basically a pair of uh, hook-like fittings that are, you know, sitting up top near the grid fins. Uh, that's how they're going to basically get uh, Mechzilla to catch the super heavy. Mm-hmm. Although it, there, there's still some questions on exactly how that's going to work. Um, I have some, but uh, I kind of mm. get it. You kind of catch it kind of like you catch um, a jet that lands on, you know, an aircraft carrier. But there's some people pointing out that once the thing, you know, hits uh, that cable, it's going to dip and that those lines might actually hit the fins. But I don't know. That's just all kind of speculation as to, ex- you know, exactly how it's going to work. Right. Um, it still seems very technically challenging. Well, maybe, maybe again, that having that X shape rather than making that easier to catch the grid fins, maybe that would make it easier for the grid fins to avoid That's being true. over yeah. the holding mechanism. If they angle it that way or rotate it that way. We'll have to see, though, because a lot of stuff's in a state of flux. And during its first flight, uh, Super Heavy is just going to splash down in the water. So don't need to have this figured out yet. Yeah. Uh, And then the other one, um, we interviewed Danny Gleason last week. And uh, he shot me an email uh, before we did the interview. And I forgot to bring it up. Uh, But he pointed out another podcast uh, that you might like to listen to. It's called Ireland's Place in Space. Um, it's a new show. Um, it's sponsored by Space Industry Skillnet, which, um, Danny mentioned last week. And, uh, it's just, uh, interviews, just chats with, uh, people, uh, active in, uh, in, in the space sector in Ireland. So it seems pretty cool. I haven't listened to it, but if Danny likes it, I'm going to say that I'm going to like it and you're going to like it. <laughs> um, so yeah, Ireland's place in space. I'm, a, I'm assuming you can just, uh, search for it wherever you're listening right now, or uh, there'll be a, a link to the, uh, Apple podcasts page, uh, in the show notes. All right. So, uh, this week in spaceflight history, um, we have one winner, which is Chubba Dracozzi. Um, that might be partially due to the fact that Dennis, you gave the incorrect year on that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had the right one written down, but I said the wrong thing. And, uh, we just, yeah, we, we just can't get our dates right. Yeah. Having a tough time. <laughs> but we did tweet about it, uh, to let everyone know. Very late in the week. <laughs> It took us a while. Sorry, folks. Yeah, so the clue was move that parking cone over there. And I wasn't sure what that was about, but now it makes total sense. So yeah, right. what is the parking cone? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I was able to uh, identify uh, uh, on Twitter, thanks also to Chubby uh, and Ben for looking that up, uh, that uh, parking cones were not invented in 1933. And so in, instead, <laughs> <laughs> this was uh, actually an event that took place on the 18th of August, 1993. And again, and my apologies for getting uh, saying the wrong uh, year. And this was the first flight of the uh, DCX Delta Clipper. And so uh, this was a really cool 
uh, uh, vehicle, um, a very uh, parking cone-shaped one, if you haven't seen it before. And so that's uh, essentially where uh, it came from. But um, And so this was, uh, uh, it was built by McDonnell Douglas. Sorry, can I bust in? We don't know if parking cones were invented in 1933. We just know that they weren't patented until a decade after that. <laughs> so, like... I mean, we, we just need to be really careful because we will get emailed, uh, at the, f at the first slip. So, <laughs> but, but I mean, do email us. Like if you know when they were invented, like I would love to know, I'd love to see the, I'd love to see a, a turn of the century parking cone. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, the, but yeah. the part the parking cone, uh, community is uh, very, very, you know, sensitive about, uh, getting the, those kind of. Hey, you know, I want to I want to meet a member of the parking cone community because that's the kind of nerdery that I would totally be into. <laughs> like, yeah, have you ever probably, seen uh... have you seen there are people who like have entire websites and forums just dedicated uh, to photos of streetlights? Mm -mm. I can't say I'm terribly surprised, but I would have never thought that in a million years. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. And so so this this uh, the DCX uh parking cone uh, vehicle um, was a uh, vertical takeoff, vertical landing, single stage to orbit prototype, essentially. And so um, it was a one third scale model uh, standing about 14 feet high. And, you know, parking cones, one way to describe it, but, you know, it does have kind of a, a very squarey shape to it. And so, um, you know, you could think of also like, you know, if you had uh, a normal looking pyramid and you held the base down and just kind of pulled up on the top to elongate it in the vertical direction as well. So so it's about 4.1 meters wide at the base. So, you know, not that big, you know, like when you see people staying next to it, you know, you can kind of get a sense that um, it wasn't that large. But, you know, it, it was really cool, very bizarre frankly uh, uh uh thing to look at but yeah I, I had no idea about this i mean i didn't know too much about the delta clipper but uh evidently um it was uh funded by uh, the strategic defense initiative organization and so if strategic defense initiative sounds um familiar to you um that is the star wars program uh, mm. going back uh you know in the 80s and so that they uh evidently this was uh you know brought up in a conversation uh that involved, uh, you know, a general who was, you know, related to that project or had interest in it, as well as uh, Dan Quayle. And so that kind of, you know, dates <laughs> back to 1993. And so uh, who, you know, why Dan Quayle? Because he was, you know, this was the first National Space Council, right? And if you uh, unfamiliar, he was a uh, vice president. And, and yeah, he was the kind of head of the, uh, the first National Space Council, which kind of, you know, went dormant uh, for a few decades and then, uh, you know, kind of famously was uh, brought back to life last uh, administration uh, under uh, vice, with Vice President uh, Mike Pence, who's a bit of a space geek, uh, it sounds like, himself. Yeah, so so the vehicle had uh, four RL-10 engines uh, to powering it, and so this was uh, uh, Hydrolox, hydrogen and uh, uh, liquid I didn't oxygen. even know that. Yeah, yeah I don't oh, know. Yeah, that. Yeah. And uh, Scaled Composites uh, built the Aeroshell, uh, as you oh. uh, might know them from the, uh, you know, winning the uh, the Ansari X Prize, right? Um, very good at, you know, Aeroshells. Um, although this Aeroshell had a few problems, <laughs> but it wasn't really Scaled Composites' fault. It was more the uh, uh, the flights and uh, landings that were the issue. And so, yeah, so so the flight itself, um, you know, is referencing, you know, moving that parking cone over there. It's not terribly original for a clue, uh, but it's the best I could do. <laughs> and yeah, it was uh, a 59-second flight. Uh, just uh, 46 meters, but it was successful. And so this was, you know, it was certainly claimed and I don't have any uh, evidence to the contrary, but it sounds like it was the first, you know, vertical 
takeoff and landing of, you know, a proper rocket on Earth. You know, it was the first since, of course, the uh, the, the lunar modules, um, which did do a vertical takeoff, uh, a vertical landing. Although I guess in their case, they'd be a VLVT because uh, they landed first and then took off. But yeah, even though, right, we've kind of gotten a bit more used to uh, SpaceX landing their Falcon 9s vertically, uh, I, I mean, just think back to the first time you saw that happening and how wild that was. And uh, but yeah, we, you know, that was also uh, a full scale, you know, first stage of a, you know, a working rocket that was landing. So a little different than this, but we, and we, I mean, humanity had been, you know, first successfully was able to, you know, launch rockets and land them vertically back in 1993. And so uh, that one was just 46 meters, but, you know, it was getting successively, you know, flying higher and higher. And so uh, the DCX um, actually flew and where, you know, DC is Delta Clipper and X is experimental. Um, the DCX flew a total of eight times. You know, we'll have a link in the, the show notes uh, giving kind of details. But like, if you look at this, you know, reading a table isn't really good um, podcast uh, use of podcast time, uh, but this table is really worth checking out because you see they reflew this thing, you know, uh, within like you know a week, you know, within seven days, a couple times it seemed, and all these flights uh, they kept going like a little higher each time, uh, ultimately peaking at uh, twenty five hundred uh, meters or you know two point five uh, kilometers, and each one of these you know were you know testing different things, and they all seem to have a little bit of uh, character and a little bit of history behind them, and so you know. Uh, some of the things that they were testing was, you know, doing 180 degree rolls. Uh, the fifth flight was an interesting one. They actually had a uh, an explosion <laughs> on the pad, uh, gaseous hydrogen ignited, and yet they still flew for 17 seconds um, before deploying or uh, before, uh, you know, basically executing the uh, uh, or deciding to do the uh, initiate the emergency auto land sequence. That was 17 seconds into the flight, and so it turned out that. That one only, it was planned to go higher, but only made it to 790 meters uh, and uh, landed, uh, you know, 78 seconds after. And so at the end of the day, though, that was, you know, good that they were able to, you know, deal with an, an anomaly like that. And like I said, that was only the fifth of eight flights, right? And this was just, you know, a single vehicle, the DCX. And um, the other ones, uh, uh, the, the sixth flight went well. Um, they continued expanding uh, the flight envelope. And then um, uh, their seventh flight, uh, the penultimate one, was the first use of the uh, RCS uh, uh, system on board. And uh, they had an angle of attack uh, that they varied from zero to 70 degrees. Uh, and then finally, their final flight, the eighth one, and this was uh, at this point um, a couple years later. This was, uh, they demonstrated a turnaround maneuver, but uh, unfortunately, uh, they had some issues during the, right, I didn't say it, but this is propulsively landing, right? So kind of just like, you know. SpaceX is doing with their Falcon 9s now, first stages, it didn't stick the landing. It came in a little too hot. And so 14 feet per second uh, was the speed that it hit the ground, which is uh, about 9.5 miles per hour or 15 kilometers per hour. And that was enough to uh, damage the aero shell enough that they were like, okay, you know, we've had, uh, you know, eight good flights with this one. So let's uh, let's upgrade and try uh, uh, another prototype, uh, you know, and uh, see what we can do uh, iterating on this design. And so uh, Sam in the chat, I like... Uh, uh, pointing out that you know there are uh, plenty of vertical takeoff, vertical landing uh, jets, and can we can we not fail to talk about the best uh, VTOL jet, which would be the LRV, the the lunar research vehicle, the the trainer for uh, oh yeah for that, the for landing the LEM, the flying uh, bed stand or whatever. Yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and you know it's awesome despite the. I, 
not just awesome, it's the best, despite the fact uh, that it, you know, tried its darndest to kill a couple of astronauts. Mm. It's still very cool. It's got it's got jets on it. Like like everybody in the public should just know that that exists <laughs> forever. That should be like reading, writing, arithmetic, and knowing the, uh, the <laughs> reading, flying. writing, arithmetic, and Instead. the LRV. <laughs> oh, LLRV. There you go. Lunar landing research vehicle. So, so just to point out, you'd said that this is uh, like what four point one meters at the base, and it's twelve meters high. Now, this is like you said, a one third scale vehicle, so mm-hmm. it was never meant to go to orbit. But it's it's just interesting. To think about, okay, so I assume that if it's one third scale, right, then that means it, its total height would be like thirty six meters. So uh, just a little, a little bigger because it was actually fourteen meters high. But yeah, still not that much. That's just forty two meters. Forty two um, meters. Okay. So yeah, I, I guess that's about right. But that's shorter than a lot of other rockets. I mean, still like you know within reason. But it's but it's just you know it is single stage to orbit. So I I just want to know more about how like how back in the 90s were they going to make a single stage to orbit vehicle because uh i mean i just have so many questions and i've and surprisingly i've never really looked into it i mean i've known about this since i was a kid but i just never really at least at the time i didn't know the right questions to ask and since then i still haven't really asked them but Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like how does something like this actually make it to orbit and back again but yeah anyway sorry i just wanted to throw yeah no that's i mean the 90s seemed like it was all about you know, single stage to orbit mm-hmm. <laughs> and space yep. planes. And at least the X-33 had like a path forward where it's like, we'll use a, a, a huge linear aerospike. Um, but as far as this one, I I don't know. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's what happens when you get a test vehicle that's made by, you know, the, the military initially. And they're like, you know, <laughs> just make this work. I don't know. Yeah, uh, that sounds like a very good characterization. I'm not seeing any heat shielding. So how does it reenter? You know, we're yeah, all, yeah. I guess the full that. scale would have. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean that, and right, and that's that's one of the hardest things to deal with when you want a reusable vehicle. Due to its shape, I would imagine you know it would function kind of like a blunt body, and it would you know have you know the bottom more or less pointed downward, so that would take most of the heat load in. You could put a shield there, but that's also where the engines are. You'd have better shock, like you'd be able to push that shock cone off farther if it flew in on its side, presenting the triangular surface. And that would be really easy to cover. And I mean, it, it, it'd basically be Starship. But then it seems like, I guess at higher altitude, yes, but then wouldn't it really want to pitch back? Like it wants to kind of, you know, do that shuttlecock thing where it kind of. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like there, yeah. Obviously there are like issues to solve there, like actually keeping in that orientation, but. Because mm-hmm. it's so cone-shaped <laughs> that it seems like it would be hard to do. And that, and that's something, I mean, maybe it's obvious, but I really think it's worth pointing out that, you know, there, there's a lot of these, you know, weird concepts and it being the 90s, uh, very uh, kind of, I mean, just stereotypical 90s looking renders of them, you know, exist. And there's a lot of those floating around for all these different types of vehicles that were being uh uh, designed but this one i mean this one flew like you can watch videos we'll have video in the you know in the chat of it you know flying and and you could see this weird parking cone <laughs> take off and come back down and land uh propulsively and so it's just i mean it's just fascinating this is yeah this is definitely you know a very visual type of vehicle you'll, you'll want to check it out yeah and so technically so even though that after that Eighth flight, uh, you know, they cracked the aero shell, uh, and that was the end of DCX. But you know, they went and uh, made an advanced version, so it was the DCXA, and so they had some improvements that ended up reducing its mass by 620 kilograms. And um, you know, uh, McDonnell, uh, right, was kind of the, the the lead for building it. But you know, Aerojet, uh, you know, improved the RCS system, and the uh, the oxygen tank was actually built by uh, Energia. 
And so the, they, you know, were working with the Russians on this as well. And so, yeah. And so this one did four flights of White Sands. Um, at this point earlier, the DCX was, uh, uh, Star Wars, if, if you are unfamiliar with the history of it, uh, was kind of a flop. And so, um, once Star Wars was gone, they, uh, you know, just transferred it over to NASA and the Department of Defense, uh, to keep funding it. And so, um, but this DCXA version, I mean, it looks like another parking cone and it did these four flights, but unfortunately during the fourth flight landing, strut number two of the four struts, uh, that it would, you know, have to land on, failed to extend, which means once it hit the ground, it toppled over. Uh, a very calm person, uh, or uh, one of the people makes a very calm call saying basically, oh, she's coming over. And then boom, <laughs> it's, it's a ground, big explosion, you know, still got all that fuel on board. And so, yeah, and that was the end of that. That is a, a brief little history in a uh, flying parking cone. Awesome. 1990s VTVL. Thanks, Dennis. That was like really good. <laughs> I'm I'm glad to, to have gotten to set through that one. All right. So next week is the 24th through the 30th of August. Uh, David, do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. And next week's event will be in 1962. That's that is the correct year. I double checked. <laughs> and the clue is, hello, I live next door. Sorry, I didn't come and say hello sooner. So Yep, there's your clue. There's your clue. If you have a guess as to what this clue is in reference to, go ahead and give us your guess. Uh, the best way to do that is to tweet using the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck, everybody. So moving on to upcoming spaceflight events, just uh, two little events. First one is a launch. Yep, it's a launch. It's a Soyuz flying OneWeb Mission 9. Uh, that's 34 OneWeb Constellation Internet. Um, that's going to be launching on August 19th at 22.33 UTC, uh, which is 6.33 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, as expected, that's flying out of the Baikonur Cosmodrome. And as for our other event, it is uh, U.S. Spacewalk number 77. And so uh, you can check out on Monday, August 23rd, a uh, preview uh, by NASA at 2 p.m. Eastern. As Ben likes to point out, these are amazing and really cool and very, uh, very well worth watching. Uh, and then that's, Doug, uh, Doug, you know... Doug. Doug, sorry. <laughs> yeah. And that's to get you jazzed up and ready for uh, the spacewalk itself, uh, which is going to be on Tuesday, August 24th, uh, with coverage starting on NASA TV at 6.30 a.m. Eastern. Um, this uh, is uh, specifically to install a bracket on the Port 4 truss to get ready for the next iRosa solar array. And so this is going to be uh, Akihiko Hoshide and uh, Mark Vandehey. Um, uh, doing the uh, performing the spacewalk, and uh, the spacewalk itself is scheduled to begin at 8 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and lasts at least six and a half hours. All right, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And with that, let's deal with the show then. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. Thank you so much to our five dollar and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. Including for today's show, we had Sam, Colin, Delta V, Mike, uh, Stanley, Anderson. And James Sutherland for a hot minute. Thanks for showing up. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Uh, tell a friend or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. And for more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you. Thank you.